Man, what a powerful worship time. You guys agree with that? What a powerful worship time. I, I am so excited to be here with you. So I just want to thank you again for allowing me to come up here and allow me to speak God's word to you. Um, it's an honor every week, every four weeks or whatever I get the chance to come up here and to preach God's word is something I don't take lightly. And I'm sure that's something that you guys should never take lightly as you have someone up in front of you preaching God's word. So I would encourage you to use your Bibles today because we will go through some scriptures, your phones or in your, ta uh, in your bulletins. There's also the scriptures there for you. So check everything I'm saying because I'm not going to stand up here and let you know and tell you that I have everything all figured out. But I trust that God is going to use me in a powerful way because he's here and he's present. That was just an awesome time of worship. So, man, if it's your first time here, I want to welcome you. My name is Stephen. I am super glad that you are with us. So before we began this series, um, I wondered what the initial thoughts would be for people who hear this title, I Deserve It. I started to wonder what, what comes to mind when you hear that title. Because every good book, every good movie, or even the name of a restaurant does something when you hear it or read that title. It brings up some type of emotion, right? It gives you some type of thought or even an anticipation for what to expect. So I wondered, with this title, I deserve it, what, are, what, what would most people say that they deserve? Well, in this four-week series, we've been looking at the Bible, and we've been looking at four different characters of what they deserve, but what they actually receive from God. In week one, if you were here with us, we looked at two criminals who were crucified on both sides of Jesus. And we talked about how these sinners deserved the punishment that they were receiving. But instead, one of them looks to Jesus and God grants him life in Christ. Our attention in this story was drawn to the God who holds eternity in his hands. In week two, we looked at the woman caught in adultery and who she was put on blast by the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They humiliated her and they clearly pointed out that she deserved what? Condemnation. They made it so clear. But Jesus, in an incredible moment, if you recall that story, out in front of everyone who was there, he told them, hey, if you can pick up the first stone and stone this woman, then go ahead and do that. Not one of them did. And in that moment, Jesus extends mercy instead of condemning that lady. Our attention here was drawn to the God who extends mercy to those who place their faith in Christ. Last week, we looked at this man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he made his living cheating on his people. He was, the, the, he was, he was uh, hated by most people, and he, was deserved, and he deserved that. He was despised. He wasn't liked, and he was probably, as a result of that, a very lonely man. But we looked at this, this time when Jesus was coming into his town in, in Jericho. And, and Zacchaeus, despite his, his political, despite his, his financial status, despite his job, he too realized that he needed a glimpse of Jesus. He needed Jesus. And so he was a short man and he ran across ahead of Jesus onto a tree, climbed this tree so he can get a look at Jesus. And we read that Jesus stopped. He looked in the direction of Zacchaeus and he called him by name down that tree. And that was a powerful moment last week as Danny brought out what the, what the, how significant that was that Jesus called him by name. And we looked at how Jesus knows each and every one of us by name. And while Zacchaeus deserved to be rejected, God gave him acceptance. Today we're going to discuss how you and I deserve to be counted out. But God, instead of turning his back on us, restores us because he's a God of restoration. And we're going to do that by looking at the failure of one of Jesus' closest disciples. You guys know who he is? Peter. So last week, Danny gave us a question to think about, and I want to do the same for you today. All right, the question for us today that we're going to be looking at is how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with failure? That's going to be our question for today, and hopefully as we get through this, we're going to look at this question and have a little bit of a different answer if, if today your answer is something of, 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 
of, of, of beating myself down. But how do you look? How do you deal with failure? As I said, we're going to look at Peter's failure. But before we go on beating up on Peter, because it's easy to beat on Peter here, I want us to take a few moments and take a few shots at ourselves. Reality is this. We live in an imperfect world, right, filled with imperfect people. Is that a true statement or not? Very true. And believe it or not, you are one of those imperfect people living in this imperfect world. Is that a true statement? I heard a few yeses before. Do I hear a few now? That's true. The fact is every single one of us are imperfect. And each and every one of us fail. Each and every one of us fall short at some point. Now, we might not like to hear that, but it's something that we all will go through. We will all fail at something at some point in our lives. But let's be real and honest with ourselves. How many of us wake up in the morning, run to the bathroom, look in the mirror and say, today I will fail. That is my goal for today. We don't plan on failure, right? We plan for success. Failure isn't on our to-do list. Failure wouldn't be on our friend list if failure was a, perf a person. In fact, failure is looked down on, especially in our generation. Our kids are growing up in a generation that tells them there is no wrong that they can do, right? We, we are taught that in order to land a perfect job, our resumes must tell of the, how flawless of a person we are. I believe today the pressure is the highest to portray your best possible image, the image of success, never failure. I got this just last week in my car. Actually, I can just say this morning, but I'm going to go with the story from last week. My girls were in the car, and they were hugging each other in the back seat, and they were telling each other how much they love each other. I think this was when Emily was going to go on a, a sleepover with her grandmother, and Grayson was very emotional at this time. She was going to be without her sister for a night, and she's telling her, you are the best, and I love you. So I, I jokingly told Joanne, I said, take a picture of this and put it on Facebook because I want to show everyone how perfect we are because we must be doing something, right? Look how good our sisters, our, our daughters are. They love each other. Now, we were joking because we know, and you guys know, those of you who've been around, right, know that our kids aren't perfect and we're not perfect parents. But what was I doing? What was I joking with Joanne? Hey, let's portray that on social media jokingly, guys, okay? Jokingly. So I wanted her to do that because the truth is, though, that we live in a world, again, that tells us to be successful, we have to portray success. We got to think success. We got to breathe in success, dress like success, eat like success. I'm doing a bad job of that. And behave, behave like success. We live in a generation in a world that tells us there is no room for failure. In fact, failure is a sign of inadequacy. So when one of our young ones fail, we, we don't let them see it as a moment of failure. But we actually, we actually somehow mask it as they, they somehow achieved something. Did you know that this generation has actually been called the self-esteem generation? In 2009, a writer for the Wall Street Journal wrote this in one of her articles. She wrote, for 30 years, the self-esteem movement told the young they're perfect in every way. It's yielding something new in history. She says, an entire generation with no proper sense of inadequacy. See, we live in a generation we see no value in our brokenness. So when failure hits, we've been taught that we are great and destined for success. And so when that failure hits, we have no clue how to handle the failure. So the question is again for us, how do you handle failure? How do you deal with failure? Just as in the first three weeks, my hope today is ultimately not to draw attention to ourselves, but to the God of this universe and who he is in the midst of our failures. While doing so, we are and what we deserve will be discussed. But ultimately, it's my prayer that today we leave ourselves seeing ourselves in the light of who God is. Amen. My aim is to put on display the beauty of God for which we exist. So with that, I want to bring your attention to today's main scripture reading. It is in your bulletins once again, brothers and sisters. It's found in Luke chapter 22. I'm going to look through verses 54 
through 62. It's in your bulletins if you want to follow along. Chapter 22 of Luke, verses 54 through 62. I will be taking this all over the place a little bit, brothers and sisters, but for the most part, we're going to focus in on Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. Before we go into God's word, I want to pray. Because as I opened up, this is a serious moment as we go into God's word. Amen. So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for this time, this opportunity that we have to look into your word, God. Your word is living. Your word is active, Lord. And so when we handle your word, oh God, we ask and pray that you would enable us to see what you, what you want us to see, to hear what you want us to hear, to, to learn and to grow, God, so that we can be better followers, that we can be better sons and daughters, we can be better uh, brothers and sisters to one another, God, so we can be better parents, better people, but Lord, ultimately so that we can glorify you and your name be lifted up, Father, over all things. So God, as we look into your word, may you richly bless us, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So let's read together. Um, not together. Follow along. Verse 54 starts off. Luke 20. You guys are like, well, I got to read eight verses right now together? No. Just follow along in your heads. So when, so they arrested him, and they led him to the high priest's home. And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it. And Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man is, is, was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter said. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord, talking to Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left that courtyard weeping bitterly. Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Immediately in our text, I want to point out, at least in my in, in the ESV version, it starts off with the word so. Now, that indicates that something, obviously something happened before that. So just a little tip as you're reading your Bible, as you go into study the Word, you want to look at key little words like that, right? So, so if you're starting off there and it says, so, well, what happened before? So there were events that happened prior to this event that would let us, that leads us to where we are now. So we're going to look back. This way we can ha have a better understanding of just how significant this moment is for Peter. Because you and I have to ask this question, how did Peter get to the point where his failure is such a powerful story that's not just recorded in Luke, but in all the Gospels? And can we learn anything from it? As I looked at that question, I became so convinced that it's actually not his failure that was so eye-popping as much as what built up to his failure and the outcome of his failure. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever failed at something once and wondered how in the world did things turn out this way? like you woke up and, and things just are not where they where they were supposed to be how did it come to this point how did it, I get here how did I get here like how did how did Peter get to the point where he denies Jesus three times I imagine that at that moment when Peter left weeping bitterly with the face of Jesus stuck in his mind and the words of Jesus in his head and the replaying of his denial over and over again I imagine that Peter at that moment probably would have loved to do over but you guys agree have you ever failed at something so badly that you wish you had a do-over button? Now, Jesus offers us something even greater, and we're going to get to that. Before we get to that, we're going to look back at two mistakes that Peter makes that will help us have a better understanding. Again, how did Peter end up weeping bitterly in that courtyard? Inserted in your bulletins I mentioned are today's notes with these fill-in-the-blanks. 
I would love it if you follow along with us. Go ahead and write in them. If you want to just go ahead and draw airplanes on that too, guys, I do that every weekend too. Danny, I know he doesn't take offense to it. I don't take offense to it. Go ahead. Anything to keep you up and keep you focused. But those blanks are for you. The first fill in the blank is this. Peter's mistakes, his first mistake, for those of us taking notes, he underestimated his own weaknesses. He underestimated his own weaknesses. To do this and to understand that, we're going to have to look back. Because prior to this moment in the courtyard, we understand Peter as this person who, who he's yet to recognize his own weaknesses. And as it opened up, Peter is actually one of Jesus' closest disciples. Peter was one of the three, James and John being the other two, out of the 12 that was chosen by Jesus to be with him on various occasions where the others were not. If you recall, one such occasion was undoubtedly had to be the most overwhelming moments in Peter's life. It was when Peter was taken up with, with James and John and Jesus up the mountain to pray. Where Jesus, where they would be a witness to the glorious radiance as the face of Jesus shines like the sun, the scripture tells us. And his clothes became white, uh, white as light. Peter was witnessing the deity of Jesus. This is known as the transfiguration. Some of us heard that. Because up to this point, they've walked with Jesus the man. But now Peter, with James and John, was alone in the presence of Jesus in all his glory. It's had to be one of the most unbelievable moments in Peter's life. This is Peter prior to this denial. This is Peter at the high being one of the chosen to see Jesus in all of his glory. What an awesome honor that must have been. How much all Peter must have been, been in at that moment. It was also Peter who correctly confesses that Jesus Christ was, the, was indeed the Christ. When Jesus asked Peter this question, who do you say that I am? And Peter again correctly confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Jesus tell Peter? He says this to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. This is what makes Peter's fall all the more dramatic. This adds to the sadness of when, Jesus, of when Peter falls, is that also Jesus actually tells the disciples that they will all fall away. Prior to this, prior to this moment again, Jesus goes up to the disciples and tells them that they're going to all fall away when he's led to be crucified. Does anyone remember Peter's response to Jesus? He says this, Peter's response, even though they all fall away, I will not. What is happening here, brothers and sisters? Peter is actually looking at Jesus. Jesus, goes on, Jesus says, every single one of you will fall away. And Peter is like, Jesus, you got this wrong. Jesus, you got this wrong. Nah, Jesus, you're, you're, complete, you're not completely correct when you say they're all going to fall away. I love you too much, Jesus. I'm not going to fall away. I will be there. And Peter, Jesus responds to Peter. I love this. He looks at Peter, and he tells him this. He says, he opens up, in my, and, and he has me verses, truly. I love that. It's like Jesus is saying, like, seriously, Peter, seriously, I'm not lying. Like, I'm the Christ, the one that you confessed yourself. You remember the one who you saw on the mountain in all of my glory? Like, I'm telling you this, Peter. Truly, truly, he says. I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He says it again. Peter, I'm being serious. Truly, you're going to deny me three times. Does anyone know what happens after that? Peter again corrects Jesus, so sure of his love and his own strength, with such certainty and doubt. He says this, the scriptures tell us, he says, Peter's response, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. He is so certain which makes his fall so much worse. And because you and I know what happens, we actually know that he falls. It's like at this moment, we're all looking at us like, poor Peter. Man, poor Peter. 
and our heads shake, and, and we just feel so horrible. Like, Peter, man, like, Jesus is warning you, man. You can't, be, you can't really think you're that strong. Like, humble yourself, dude. Right? Like, man, Peter, and we shake our heads. But I want to burst our bubbles a little bit because I want to say this. I want to say that you and I are no different than Peter. Peter was at that moment in his life, but you and I have other moments in our lives. And I'll just speak for myself. I know that despite how great I might try, I know that I am 100% capable of betraying and falling at any moment and betraying those I love most. I know I'm 100% capable of hurting those who are closest to me. I know that when I'm at my highest, if I'm not careful on God, I am a capable, I am a sinner who's capable of falling away. This is why Paul, and he says this is uh, the Corinthians church, found in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. I told you I was going to go a little bit over the pace, but if you want to write that down, it's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. This one's not up there. I apologize. But Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says this. He warns them. He says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If you're even thinking that you are firm, that you, there's nothing that can rock you, that's when Paul says, be careful. Be careful because you will fall. Be careful that you don't fall. 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 12. See, I believe that if Peter would have not underestimated his own weakness, he would have actually been stronger than he thought he was. In the same way, when you and I recognize our weaknesses, we are then strongest. When we recognize our weaknesses, we are then strongest. The question is, how is that possible, Burios? I'm not going to answer. I'm going to let Jesus answer for you. And right up here in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul's quoting what Jesus says. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. Amen. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weaknesses. And Paul goes on with that, and he says, man, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul responds and says, man, Christ's power is made perfect in my weaknesses. Therefore, for when I am weak, I am strong. Peter made the mistake of underestimating his own weaknesses. You and I must recognize our weaknesses because we are very much just as capable of falling away as Jesus, as Peter did when he denied Jesus. I also believe that because Peter underestimated his own weaknesses, he failed to be watchful and in prayer. When Peter sat by the fire at that courtyard standing with the people, I want to give him credit, he's there. But Peter was caught off guard. He was caught off guard when he was asked these questions. And so I believe in preparing this message, I was reminded of a yet another account involving Peter and the other again chosen two, James and John, that took place prior to his denial. It was when Jesus took Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden to pray with him. And then he tells them to sit here, remain, and, and watch as, as he went on to pray a little further. But Peter, along with the others, the scripture tells us, along with the others, fell asleep. Some of you might know the story. They fall asleep. So as Jesus Notice, and Jesus comes back, and the scripture tells us he says something directly to Peter. He says this, he says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? That's interesting to me. It's interesting that, Pe that Jesus is speaking and directing this to Peter alone. See, Jesus didn't find just Peter asleep, and it says he found them asleep, right? But he directs this to Peter, and I believe he's doing that because he knows again, Jesus knows that Peter's going to deny him in a, short, in a short while. So Jesus goes on and says to Peter this, he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This next one, catchy, says, The spirit is willing, Peter. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is, 
is willing, but your flesh is weak. Fascinating. Again, Jesus is telling Peter, you are weak, Peter. You might indeed be willing, but you are weak. So why was he caught off guard in there? It's because Jesus, Peter could not recognize his own weaknesses. And despite his willingness to, and his spirit, Peter was there. He attempted to follow Jesus. It's not completely like destroy Peter here. He's there. How many of us would have been in that courtyard? Like seriously, he's there in the courtyard. Give him some credit. How many of us would have even been in the courtyard? But he's there. His spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. Because he could not see his own weaknesses, Peter did not find it important to pray enough to be on guard as Jesus warned him that he would be in that, uh, that spot, in that very dangerous place, and he's caught off guard that night in the courtyard. So the first of Peter's mistakes was what? He underestimates his own weaknesses. He couldn't see it, and he surely did not embrace it. Number two of Peter's mistakes, he followed Jesus at a distance. He follows him at a distance. Now, we're giving him credit here that he's there. But I want to talk about that for a little bit, that whole idea of following Jesus at a distance. So I want us to look at that verse 54. It says, so when they arrested him, when they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home, Peter followed at a distance. He followed him at a distance. There's a very, very real danger, brothers and sisters, friends, that comes with following Jesus at a distance. Most of us would like to say that we are close to the Lord, right? We, we would love to say we are close to Jesus. And if we're not going to say that, I sure and I pray we will all say, I want to be close to the Lord. I want to follow him closely. Like, I want to read the Bible every day. I want to go to, uh, to, to life group. I want to be guided by and led by the Holy Spirit. I want to know what he wants for my life. I want to be close. I want to be close. Why would we say that? Because we all understand, I believe, that when we are closest to the Lord, those are the sweetest of days. Quite honestly, though, not, we're not all there. And if you're honest, you might admit to yourself today that you've probably failed at following Jesus closely. And you are, in fact, following him at a distance. Some of what I'm going to say right now might sting a little bit. But I ask and pray that we stick with this because Jesus is doing the work. When we're following Jesus at a distance, you might be sitting here saying, I, I am. Or you're not even sure. You sit here again, you're saying, my spirit is willing. I want to do all that, but I, I just can't. My, your flesh is weak. But how do you know you're following Jesus at a distance? Here's a few ways. Today, when you walked in, this morning, this evening, since we meet in the evening, is the very first time that you cracked open your Bible all week. When we opened up in prayer, it was the first time that this week you, you, you attempted to pray. Maybe you're following Jesus at a distance. Reading God's word is not a priority in your life. So you settle for a quick word from some Christian article that you've read or a quick little Facebook scripture, and that's the most you got today. Or you listen to a Christian song, and you're going to rely on that song to get you through the day. You're not passionate about the very things Jesus died for, such as the church. So missing fellowship with brothers and sisters doesn't bother you as much. You're not passionate about his kingdom and doing his work. So making efforts to serve through the local church never makes it on your schedule. Let me put it this way. You are settling for sitting in the upper deck, the cheap seats. The cheap seats. Now, listen, I go to City Field, and, and I love the cheap seats in, in City Field. I don't mind the upper deck because, obviously, it's the cheapest seats, all right? So, yeah, I have no problems with that. I'm not going there. I have no problems with sitting up in the upper deck, right? But if you were to tell me, Steve, you can choose anywhere in the stadium free of charge, you know I'm not choosing upper deck, right? Like, that would be insane. Where am I choosing? I'm choosing right front row behind home plate. That's where I'm choosing. That's where I want to sit. Why? Because I want to be closest to the action. 
Because I know that the closer I get to the action, the greater this game experience would be for me. Where I can actually, I can see the sweat coming on, you know, Cespedes' face as a player from the Met. Like, I can, I, can, I, can really, I can really see his swing. You know, I can hear the glove, the mitt, and the catches popping at each pitch. Like, I want to be right there in the middle of the action because I know that that's going to cause for an even sweeter experience for me. I know that the closer I get to the game, the more I'm going to feel a part of the game. That's why when you're watching the game on TV, you get the people on the home plate, like, arguing with the umpire. Right, because they actually feel like they're in the game now. What do you call it? That, that's not a strike. Like, they can actually see it, so they're, they're that close. They feel more a part of the game. I want to feel more a part of the game because I'm passionate about the game. Let me ask you a question. How much value do you put in your walk with Christ? How passionate are you in your walk with Christ? Is it the utmost importance to you? Do you want to be close to the Lord? Do you want to be close to him? The fact that Peter begins to follow Jesus at a distance, I believe is something you and I can learn from and take as a warning. It's like this boy who fell off the bed one night, and his mother rushed into his room to see what happened, asks him, what happened? And his response to his mother was, well, I think I stayed too close on the spot where the bed when I got in. Right? It's like, oh, okay, all right. So obvious. So obvious. Like, but here's the truth. If we stay still or stay on the very same spot and I walk with Jesus and make no efforts to follow Jesus just a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer, let me tell you, you will fall and you will fail. Failure is going to happen. But failure, check this, is not who you are. I beat you guys up a little bit, but now I'm going to restore you a little bit because that's what Jesus would do right now. Right? Uh, you're not failure. I heard Pastor Craig Rochelle say it this way, and I, I loved it. I'm going to give him credit for it. He said this. He says, failure is not an event. Excuse me. Failure is an event, not a person. Failure is an event, not a person. That's one thing if you're going to stop drawing your airplanes, you want to put down there. Failure is not an event. Failure is an event. I'm screwing it up. Not a person. Failure is an event, not a person. Peter learned that he was indeed weak enough to fail, but his failure would not keep him down by the grace of God. I want to read this story one last time, catching up though at verse 59. At verse 59, Peter stirred the Nile of Jesus. It's in your bulletins, starting at verse 59. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he is a Galilean too. I love that. I love that Peter is not getting away with it. He's not fooling anyone. He's only fooling himself here. He's not fooling anyone. Some of us try to hide who we are in Christ. For what reason? You're not fooling anyone. Some of us try to hide our mistakes and our failures, but you're not fooling anyone but yourself. And it comes to a point where you've got to recognize and realize that you are, you have failed, or you are who God says you are. And so you pick yourself up. But here, I love it that they say, he must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But again, Peter says, man, I don't know what you are talking about. Not immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Turns and he looks at him. And they lock eyes. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left that courtyard weeping bitterly. He left weeping. Not one tear coming down his face. Not man, I messed up. He left weeping, broken, broken. Peter now gets it. I believe it was at that moment when Jesus locked eyes with Peter, he saw a couple things. One, he saw this, this is not the Jesus now for the night before. This is the bloody, beat-up Jesus at this point. And I believe when he looked at him, he got two messages from Jesus. 
The first is simply, do you remember, Peter? Do you remember when I told you and it, that you would fail, fall, fall away from me? And do you remember that you answered, that, that you would not fall away? Now, Peter, which one of us is right? Peter, at that moment, saw his sin that Jesus was, gonna, was going to die for. Peter was looking into the face of the one who was suffering and dying for his very sin at that moment. Here's the second thing. This is the one I want us to really get today. Is at that very same moment, not only was he broken for his sin, but I also believe that when Jesus and Peter locked eyes, Peter saw this. He saw a face that expressed such tenderness and mercy unlike he has ever known before. It was a look of love that I believe caused Peter to weep bitterly. Don't miss this. He was convicted of his sin and the overwhelming, undeserving, crazy, indescribable love, though, that his Savior was giving him at that moment. And Peter broke down. I have sinned, but man, my God loves me. I have messed up, but he is dying for me right now. As I close, I want, us to, I want to invite you to look at the cross. And I want you to see your sin on that cross. And I invite you to imagine Jesus, the face of our Savior, as he is suffering for your sins. For whatever your failure is in life, that, you, that, you, that, you, that you've fallen short, whatever it is today, I want you to see it on that cross. And I invite you to accept his invitation here today, to be forgiven and restored. Because if you know the story and you go on, I want you to write the scripture down. John 21, verses 15 through 19. Read this later on. Some homework. I'm going to give you a little bit of it, though. Peter, if you go on and read in John 21, verses 15 through 19, he meets up with Jesus. This is after Jesus already died on the cross and he rose from the grave. But this is before he's going up to be with his Father in heaven and his throne forever. Jesus meets with Peter on the beach and he asks Peter a question. How many of us remember that question? He says, Peter, do you love me? But he asks him three times, just as Peter denies Jesus three times. And on that third time, Jesus hears what he needed to hear. He asks this, Simon, son of John, do you love me? What is Peter's response? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter's response shows that through his failure, he has finally learned. Lord, you know everything. Before, what was it? Lord, you got it wrong. Lord, you can't be right. You, you might, yeah, they will fall, but I'm not going to fall. Lord, you're wrong on this one. Now at this moment of his weakness, after failing Jesus, Jesus comes and restores him. He asks him, do you love me? And he says, you know everything, Lord. Peter's failure was what has made him stronger. Jesus restored Peter that day. And if we know, Peter is the one who in the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down and, Jesus, and Peter goes out and he preaches the very first message of God's, Jesus' forgiveness and grace and the forgiveness of their sins. And, they, and, and, and it says, the scripture says that how many were saved? 3,000 souls were saved. You know that today you might fail, but God is a God of restoration. He's a God of forgiveness. He died on the cross for your forgiveness and to redeem you to himself. Let your failure, don't let your failure keep you down, but let it be a moment from which God can use. 
Don't let your failure keep you down. Allow it just to be a point where God can use. Recognize today that, yes, you are weak, but God is strong, and his strength is made perfect in weakness. Amen. While you deserve to be counted out, our God extends his mercy and is asking you today, do you love me? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for your amazing grace, oh God. Father, your love for us is indescribable. Your love for us is beyond my words, God, and anyone else's words here today. God, we so deserve to be punished of our sins. We so deserve to be counted out. But praise be to God who decided to send his son on our behalf to die for our sins, to take our place, and has granted us forgiveness and mercy and love. You have accepted us into your family. Help us as Peter to be broken of our sin, to recognize our weaknesses, to recognize that apart from you, we are nothing and deserving of all the punishment. But as we look at the cross, we will see the, the, the love of our God. As we look to the cross, may it break us and restore us as we surrender our lives to you. Father, we love you because you loved us. And you've helped us to see how great that love is. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, my friends here today, that today you will show them even greater your love for them. Father, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name.